Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here. Um, my family's initial exposure to Christianity was from a um, strong and fairly conservative Calvinism. If you're not familiar with Calvinism, it's a very high emphasis on, on our sin and wretchedness, and supposedly a high emphasis on, on God's grace and God's grace alone uh, through faith as the means of our righteousness. But oftentimes it can become a very um, uh, strict legalistic um, expression of Christianity, and that's really what we were exposed to. Uh, we were capable of no good. We memorized portions of Romans 3 that emphasized our sinfulness. Uh, God's grace to us was a gift begrudgingly given uh, to a bunch of people he was essentially disappointed in because they couldn't obey his laws, uh, forcing his hand then to sacrifice his son. Uh, couple that with, uh, from what was probably a love of mine since day one, uh, a love for eating. Uh, I eventually um, was overweight. I remember being pretty heavy in middle school, and that was a very weighing thing to me. Um, and then a third front uh, uh, that was really waging war against my self-image was the fact that uh, when I became a, a teenager, uh, obviously I started being attractive to women, which was rarely reciprocated. And uh, so there were a number of things by the time I was in high school that I was uh, uh, fairly down on myself on. On the other hand, uh, I've always been a producer, hard worker, I can accomplish things. So I had a few things in school and a few things in sports, and so I, I found myself boasting and exalting, uh, at least in myself, uh, for these things to compensate areas of my life that I uh, really was low uh, on myself about. And, um, you know, so... Ten years later, after slimming down quite a bit and, and getting married and getting clear on what God's calling on my life was, um, I paid to have this pretty expensive high-end test done um, on me, one of these business tests that uh, evaluates motivations and gifts and skills and working conditions and all these kinds of things. And um, the analysis asks you for little snapshot stories of achievements from as long back as you can remember. Um, and so I submitted my, my achievement list, and I got the report back. Uh, and then in the area that it described, like, you know, what are your highest motivations? Here's what it said. The right working circumstances will provide you with the opportunity to establish your superiority over others in some way. Now, yeah, I was a pastor at the time, and uh, it later says, this is not an evaluation of character. And I'm like, okay, I don't need anybody to, I don't need to pay anybody uh, to be told that that is not a good character trait. Um, it, but it, it did a, you know, just from my stories alone, from ages, you know, four or five or six up through the present day in my mid-twenties, um, it had essentially, from my own mouth, identified within me the desires to boast in myself over others. And I began to see how I had come to a point where I was even using my, uh, my ministry and my knowledge of the Bible uh, to, to boast, to elevate myself. Um, I had continued to compensate for my weaknesses in, in boasting over others. Religion 
Okay, so either in my conservative Calvinistic early beginnings or in my present-day knowledge of Scripture and ministry context, so religion, self-image, sexuality, um, they, are, they are substantial contributors to the makeup of our hearts and uh, contributors to how we think about ourselves and our affections, and they had had a significant hold on me since my youth. But I'm not sure a, a better way would have been to... Um, have all of those kind of bad things gone, and then, you know, have uh, all of the things go right. So a clear understanding, well, if I would have had a clear understanding of the gospel, that, that helps with most of our problems in life. But, you know, as a young child, I'm not sure that's very possible. But constant affirmation, having nothing ever said negative about us, having a, a more attractive body and the self-control to go along with it so you don't eat too much and, and get messed up in other areas as well, always having a girlfriend or always having what you want, I'm not sure that would have been a better solution. I don't think that those things generally prove to create a confident, humble, service-oriented people. I'm sure that that's not what I would have done if everything would have gone my way. Um, I feel like I would have used whatever I could have to, to boast in myself to hide weaknesses. We always, obviously, have weaknesses that we're really aware of, at least internally, and maybe they're not as exposed as others' weaknesses. Um, but I think that all of us are dealing with this, this profound... Um, sense of being weak and vulnerable and we're failures in, in, in a lot of ways. And even, even if everything is, looks good and we're high performers, and I think that there's still a strong degree of, of, of shame and vulnerability that we experience because everybody around us is trying to beat us and everybody's always trying to put us. So we're in this, we're in this place together. Um, I, we're always trying to mask the fragility and weakness and loneliness that we have. And so we long to boast, and this has kind of been a huge, this is really the, the big theme out of, out of the book of Romans. Uh, as people, this desire to cover up our insecurities and weaknesses and transgressions with verbal or some other expressions of our greatness is a, is a common problem. The Jews were, were boasting in their tradition, in their, in their knowledge of God through the, the law of Moses, and they were saying, hey, we are, we are a more religious people than you, than you Gentiles and Greeks are. Uh, and then the Gentiles and Greeks in the church were using the fact that they were liberated from all of these traditions. So we're, we're progressive, we're liberal, we can follow God and not have all of these chains on us. And so the, everybody was kind of finding what they could uh, find their own greatness in. And they were not able to come together as a church for what seems to be one of the most basic of things, the Lord's Supper. They couldn't come together and share the, the cup and share the bread uh, because of these divisions and because of some of the traditions around what they could eat and drink and the contempt and disdain they were showing each other for that. And obviously, if they couldn't do those things, if you can't come together to eat and drink together, you're certainly not going to be sacrificing to meet each other's needs. You're not going to be uh, coming together in unity and in service to the world. Okay, You're not, you're not going to be carrying out some of the more... Um, uh, hard things to do together. If you can't eat and drink together, you're not going to do the hard things together. The Lord's Supper is important, but all of, all of the expressions that God puts upon us as his people 
are important. They were not fulfilling, they were not fulfilling the purposes that God had for the church and for his purposes. But we long for greatness and we want to experience it. And Paul teaches, and this is another big theme that we've pressed, you know, chapter two, those who long for honor and glory and immortality will find it through perseverance in doing well. Okay, now that kind of sounds like, okay, if I do have a lot of good works, I'm going to find eternal life. And I'm going to experience glory and honor and immortality. And he says, it's not, it's not where Paul's going, though, because he's already established as well that good works do not bring you righteousness. So what does he mean by perseverance in doing good works in pursuit of honor, glory, and immortality will lead to eternal life? What does he mean by that? And that's really been an unfolding idea. How do we fulfill the law of God um, outside of a way of pursuing it through good works? We've got to do good works. We're going to be empowered for good works, but we're not saved by our good works, and we're not even going to be able to uh, energize uh, this life in reliance upon good works. And so he's building up these ideas, and it, it really has to start with this, this desire that we have for glory. And we can't put that aside. We can't put that aside. There is an internal um, power and, and desire that God has put within us as people for this honor and glory and immortality. And so if we think of, um, if we think of how Paul is, if, look, let me just kind of step back here and we're going to do a little bit of reuse, a little bit of review. So the first two and a half chapters of Romans, um, Paul has established that all human beings on the face of the planet, uh, past, present, or future, uh, are condemned under the law and are facing the wrath of God and are capable of no good, Okay. The second half of chapter 3 then establishes this, this, this wonderful good news. The righteousness of God is available. For those who have faith in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the grace gift that God put forward, um, and this, 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 this gift of his son Jesus Christ um, carried out and expressed God's righteousness in that it, it met the demands of justice and that our sins would be paid for. And judged, and it also met the demands of God's righteousness for his goodness, his mercy, his kindness, and his promises that began with the first man and woman that he would bring life back to humanity. And so God fulfilled all those things through the person of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter four, he's, he has to take a little bit of a bunny trail. Oh, that's different. Um, he has to take a little bit of a bunny trail. And explain, okay, this faith, it's not a new thing. It's not plan B. Faith has always been the way that God has worked through his, in his people, toward his people, and with his people. Um, and that's what the scriptures have been teaching as well. That's what chapter 4 is about. Now he's going to come back in chapter 5. He's going to come back in chapter 5 to this point that he made at the end of chapter 3 and says, you know, somebody asks the question because there's this in, invisible uh, judge that's representing the, um, the weak in faith in Israel, those who are coming from the standpoint of the law. You know, Paul says, listen, the, the law um, does not get us righteousness. Christ came um, apart from the law and provided God's righteousness through faith. And so this, this, 
this imaginary uh, uh, um, person that, he's a, that kind of is in opposition with him, dialogue with him, says, well, then what do we do, throw away the law? Paul says, no, by no means, we fulfill the law. So now he's coming back to chapter 5 in, in explaining how in the world we fulfill the law in pursuit of honor and glory and immortality by the doing of good works, but yet these good works are not the means of our righteousness. These first five verses of chapter 5 that we read this morning um, are essentially stating how we find greatness for ourselves in what Christ has done to conquer sin and fulfill the law. The first five verses make one strong point. We are justified by our faith, now that we are justified by our faith in Jesus Christ, we are at peace with God. And while we have no reason to boast in our own righteousness, we're not throwing out boasting altogether. In fact, he says we can boast in three things. He says we can boast in the hope of the glory of God, we can boast in our sufferings, and we can boast in God. Now, to, to boast, again, is this, is this idea that it, it's something that we can express that we are great about, that we are great in, that's bringing, that shows our greatness. But the source of our greatness in the boasting in these three things is a profoundly different source than the boasting that he was Said, that he said is eliminated in chapter 3, because it's where then is boasting? It is eliminated, it is excluded. There is no room for boasting. But now he says there's boasting. Now, if you're reading your Bible, or if you up here, the, the passage, uh, you're going to see that the word boasting is not up here. Um, the word rejoicing is used in the English Standard Version. Um, so all of the major English translations have either the words rejoicing or celebrating or exalting. But to use those words in the context of this book um, doesn't reflect the full weight of what Paul is saying here because he's using the exact same word. It's the exact same word that he, is, that he used earlier in, this, in boasting. It's the same word for boast. We don't boast in our own righteousness, but there are still some things we can boast in, which means that there are still some things that we can latch onto that are um, the source of our greatness and that make us great. Now, it gets worked out a lot differently than boasting in our own righteousness, but it's still, these, these ideas are still present for us to have a sense of greatness. We can live a life of boasting, and you know, if you want to think of celebration or rejoicing, we can live a life like this because the Holy Spirit, he says, has been given to us. It powerfully works in us, and we're going to explain these things, not only today, but through the next few chapters. And the Holy Spirit then fills us with a sense of, of God's love, which is something else that we are able to to boast in. And he says, we, we've been saved, and we've been given this experience of God's love. One of the things that he works through here in the rest of chapter 5 is that, is that in, God, in Jesus Christ saving us, and God saving us through Jesus Christ, one of the things we're saved from, and in fact, the main thing that we're saved from is the wrath of God. 
And so I want to make a, just a quick point about what is it that we are saved from when we are saved from the wrath of God. In the immediate context, um, well, there are two aspects. First of all, I think when we think the wrath of God, we're thinking about the day of judgment that is eventually going to come. Judgment day is this idea throughout all of scriptures. Everything's going to come to an end. All humanity is going to stand before God and be judged for their deeds. All humanity. Um, so that's the day of wrath, and that's mentioned in chapter 2, verse 5. But, but it's not the only expression of God's wrath that we see here in the book of Romans. God's wrath is also revealed against those who are in active rejection against him. So it's not something that we're just waiting for at the end. It's, it's, it's something that God is actually working out towards people that are, rejecting, that are in active rejection of him. In some way, people that are in rejection of God are experiencing God's wrath. Uh, it also says in chapter 4, verse 5, that, that God's wrath continues to be expressed towards those who are striving to develop their own righteousness through law. Okay, so God's wrath is against those who reject him. God's wrath is against those who are trying to build their own righteousness. Um, and then, so then, okay, well, how is this wrath expressed? One of the ways is that God's grace is withdrawn, his wrath is extended in allowing people to get deeper and deeper and deeper into their own sin, which brings more and more consequences, not only from God, but also for their own, their own error. Uh, there's a greater sense in our, in, in our consciences. We, when we are under the wrath of God, our consciences are increasingly burdened uh, by, the weight of, by the weight of our sin and by the weight of our not knowing God. Um, and also, and you can see this in chapter 12, which is we've already covered, um, that our, co- our consciences, excuse me, we, our consciences are freed if we are outside of the wrath of God. So I've already addressed that. But then there's some, some punishment for wrongdoing. It's not clear. It's in the passage where it says um, we are to, we are to um, obey Okay, obey our authorities because God's wrath is going to be expressed for those on those, not only in a guilty conscience, but also just in, in terms of life in the world. It doesn't say how that happens, but it, it's just God's wrath is currently um, against those who are not following him. Not following him. It will ultimately be met on that day of judgment. So we're saved not only from the future judgment, but we're also saved from God's wrath somehow being manifested in our daily lives when we are in Christ, when we are in Christ. So because we're saved from this wrath and because we have the experience of eternal life, because we have the Holy Spirit given to us, uh, we have a number of things that give us the ability to boast. We boast. So I want to talk about today, what does it mean to boast in these three things? What does it mean that we boast in the hope of the glory of God? Now, traditionally, this gets interpreted. Liberal, conservative scholars interpret this in, in primarily one way. We have hope that we will be in the glory of God's presence someday, and that hope is an energizing hope that we can, that we can rejoice in, okay? not, not boast in. No, it's, so that's how it's traditionally interpreted. And um, I, this is, I've always had this kind of this hunch that, that seems to be exclusively limited to this future thing 
when the scriptures and, and my own experience, to be honest with you, when the scriptures and, and my own experience um, speak to an energizing power now that is a hope for glory, a hope for greatness. You know, Jesus speaks of an abundant life. Paul speaks in Colossians, which we've been studying for many years now together as, a, as house churches. He speaks that, there's a, that Christ in us is a hope of glory, um, and there's no mention of of us kind of basking in God's glory as being our glory. That's not the idea that's there. Um, and then the, the biblical concept of eternal life is not just something that's in the future, okay? Whether it's Paul or whether it's John or any one of the New Testament authors that speak on eternal life, it's not something that's just a future experience. It's a present experience. We are to be experiencing eternal life. Jesus says the kingdom of God is now. And, and we are to, at some level, to be able to experience the kingdom of God now. And so, um, you know, before I start a series, I usually kind of peruse just, okay, what books have been published in the last four or five years on this since I taught it last time or since I've written on it or whatever. And, and a book came up on Amazon that uh, the whole book is on the concept of glory in the book of Romans. And it is a, uh, it's, from a, it's from a former graduate student of N.T. Wright's, and N.T. Wright has been writing his whole career on, on this, this big idea that, listen, we've got to get away from, from our salvation being, saving us just so that we're not going to hell. Okay, salvation is much more than not going to hell. Salvation is for the experience of the, of the power of Jesus Christ that work in our lives for the here and now life as well, and for our mission on this earth. And so one of the students picked up on some of those ideas and really dived into this idea of, of glory. And she has a completely different perspective on what this hope for glory means, and I think it's a lot more consistent with, with what's going on here. And then her, she writes this. She says, humanity's hope for glory and glorification means humanity's hope to share in the exalted status with Christ in his rule over creation having received the crown of glory originally given to Adam in their co-glorification with Christ, the new Adam. So here's, here's what she's essentially saying. Paul is drawing upon echoes from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3 and, and from Psalm 8. Okay, As he speaks about what humanity was called to do when they were first put on this earth. So if you remember, humanity was given the commission, uh, you are going to be rulers of this domain of earth. You are going to have dominion over all things that God has created. Okay, that's, she uses the term vice regent, so you rule in the place of the king. Okay, that was our calling. And Psalm 8 teaches that we were crowned with glory and honor in the, in the reception of that commission from God to be his vice regents on, his, on this earth, to be rulers on this earth. And that that glory and honor that we received from God when he gave us as humanity this calling is what we exchanged. Remember chapter 1 of Romans? We have exchanged the glory of God. We have exchanged the glory of God for animals and things that are in creation. So what we actually did we moved from worshiping and serving God as his vice regents, ruling over creation, to becoming servants and worshipers of God's creation. And we exchanged that glory that God gave us 
for a different for a different reign, for a different rule. In fact, we gave it up. Romans chapter 3 says that, that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Okay? The glory of God in Romans 3 is not we've fallen short from a moral standpoint. Okay? We as humanity have fallen short of the calling that God had given humanity and given them glory and honor in their, in their role as rulers over the world. So that's the glory okay, that we don't match up to. That's the glory that Adam failed in. And so in that giving up of that glory, in our choosing to worship the created things, rather than rule over the created things, we let sin and death reign instead. We let sin and death reign instead. So the work of God through Jesus Christ accomplished what humanity was originally given to do. And that's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. In, the, in his conquering of sin and death, right, and, and in the very, many of his miracles when he was on earth, this is, this is, the, the life of Jesus is incredibly important because in the life of Jesus you see that he has master mastery over the created realm, right? He mastered the created realm, created realm, and then in his death and resurrection, he mastered sin and death. He's the faithful man. He's the faithful man. He accomplished what Adam was not able to accomplish. And this is, in essence, what chapter 5 is about. Adam's sin was the template in terms of his one act of disobedience led to the reign of sin and death and to the disobedience of all humanity, and so, corresponding to that template, Jesus Christ is the faithful and obedient man who, through one act of obedience, brought the reign of life back to humanity. And so there's this long list of things that he goes through in chapter 5, just showing Adam's failure and Christ's opposite act. Okay, so Adam's trespass, Jesus' obedience... In Adam, many died. In Jesus, many received abounding grace. In Adam, there was judgment bringing condemnation. In Jesus, there's justification or the declaration of righteousness opposite of being condemned. Uh, in Adam, death reigned. In Jesus, those who will receive Jesus will reign in life. Um, in Adam, there was condemnation. And he, he's repetitive a little bit. Uh, in Jesus, there's justification in life. In Adam, many were made sinners. In Jesus, many are made righteous. In Adam, transgression and lawlessness increased. In Jesus, grace and righteousness abound. In Adam, sin reigned in death. In Jesus, grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life. So he's, he's going through and showing that, listen, here is how Jesus was the faithful human being that counteracted Adam's sin and brought glory back to humanity. Brought glory back to humanity. And so to boast in the hope of the glory of God is to boast in the hope of once again having dominion and status and honor as, as rulers of this earth. As rulers over God's creation rather than subject to sin and death and God's creation that is corrupt. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come. And we are his vice regents in the rule of this earth. God's people 
God's people will reign, as this author says, her name is, um, her last name is Jacob, I can't remember her first name. She says, God's people will reign again over the earth as Adam was meant to do. However, while the state of ruling God's creation once again as stewards is something that we have future hope in, okay, because that's the idea, we have, we have, we can boast in the hope of the glory of God. So that has a sense of, I mean, hope is this confident of a future good happening. So we have, we have confidence that we will once again rule and reign on this earth. But it's not just for the future, it's also for, for, for now, because in chapter 5, verse 17, it says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So prior to us taking on that future vision of ruling this earth, we are to reign now. And he's going to continue to explain this in in chapter 6, 7, and 8, but we are to reign now. And we are to reign um, over sin and death. It is, it is not to rule us. We are to rule it. We are to rule our bodies. And if you think about all of the various things that, okay, if you go back to the created order, what was humanity supposed to rule and reign in? What spheres? It's the spheres that most of the New Testament authors address. Our personal lives, our personal bodies, our marriages, our family, our work, our life in this world, all of these various things that uh, the uh, care of culture, care of, God's, of care of God's creation, all these things are things that we, are, that we were given to rule in Adam that we neglected and threw away in our sin and rebellion, but now in Christ can now, can now think of ourselves as reigning, as reigning. And we are to literally master these spheres of life through the spirit that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. And again, that that power and that understanding is going to be worked out over the next few chapters. Now, but Paul doesn't leave it with there. He says, we also boast in our suffering. Okay, because he's got to... He's got to say that because all of us that are living life and say, okay, man, I would love to rule again. But man, I just keep coming up against all of the things in my own life and in the things of this world as expressions of sin that seem to just push me back. That's, that's what causes suffering in our life. So he, yeah, you are called to be rulers as Adam was once called and through Christ you can attain that glory and you've been actually given that glory. But we have reality to, to live with until Jesus returns, and that's going to lead to suffering. He says, huh, not only do you boast in the hope of the glory of God, you are to boast in your suffering. And this is the challenge that we have upon us as followers of Jesus Christ, to boast in his suffering, to, to, to see my suffering and say, hey, this is what is making me great. Do it. That is a hard hard thing to follow Paul's instructions herein. But that's, you know, if we think about it, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, whether you know that the testing of your faith develops in James chapter 1. Okay, all of us are familiar with this idea. I think, though, that the challenge, and I, and I like, I think the stronger word here is better. Boast in your suffering. 
we have to ask why. <laughs> Celebrate in your suffering, if you want to use that word. The idea is that you look at your suffering, you experience your suffering, and you say, this is great. I am rejoicing and celebrating in this. This is what is making me better. This is what is making me great. Why? Why? Well, he gives a reason. One, suffering produces endurance. Endurance is the ability to withstand pain over a long period of time. Oh, okay, that's what I would really like to be able to do. We would all prefer to just get rid of the pain. Well, until Jesus returns, that's just not a possibility. Rather, we can rule it. We can rule our sin. We can rule over our pain and suffering, and we do so by boasting in it. So giving us the ability to endure pain over time, okay, that's a great quality to, quality to have. That, in turn, produces character. Okay, now I, want, I just want to talk about character here for a moment. Character is, is the formation of character is really the formation. It's the, it's the process that produces and reveals a more genuine expression. Character formation is the whittling away of the stuff that makes us insincere, ungenuine. Character formation is what is, you know, Paul will use another phrase, we are being made into the image of our creator. So character formation is is the process of cutting off of us the sin and death. A more genuine expression of ourselves, who we are truly meant to be, is what God is doing through the process of character formation. That's what that means. A more genuine expression of ourself. And he says this in, this in turn produces more hope. More hope. You know, I think all of us look back upon our lives if God has been working in our life for redemption, all of us will look back and say, you know what, the suffering that I went through has led to this, and I wouldn't change a thing. Yes, it was horrible going through it at the time. You know, as, our, as, our, as my children have, you know, they're moving into these stages of being young adults, this, this urge within me as a father to protect and control has been a lot stronger. Um, and it's been tested <laughs> But as I've, as I've processed things, as I've worked and talked with, with, with uh, as I've talked through, with Anna through it, um, and as I've thought about my own life, as I look back and say, you know what, um, all of, the, all of the, the sins and weaknesses and mistakes that I made in growing up have been the most profound uh, learning experiences for me in deepening in deepening into my knowledge of and love for and love from God. Um, and and that, that, that feeling, this is Paul says, and, and God's love has been poured out into our hearts. That's the best feeling in the world. And I don't want to rob my kids of that experience, you know, to protect myself from suffering any further when I see them suffering. 
You know, but God, he has, he has a sovereign and, and comprehensive understanding of all these things. And he knows that suffering in our life, if, in, if interpreted through the lens of the gospel, and if we're in pursuit of Jesus Christ and the purposes of God, uh, produces uh, endurance, and endurance produces character, and that is going to increase our hope because we go through suffering, we have character transformation, and we say, you know what? This isn't all bad. We know that better things are coming, and that is the, grow, the growth of hope. That's what it does. And then he finally says we can boast in God. We can boast in God because the Holy Spirit in this process fills our hearts with a sense of God's love. And like I said, that's the greatest feeling of all. We, we, we live life in this physical, material, external realm in pursuit of uh, inner joy, peace, happiness, love, right? All these external things we to pursue in order to find this interior wholeness. And what Paul's saying is, listen, if you know Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has been put inside of you and your experience of God's love and contentment and satisfaction and completeness and wholeness and all these, all these things we pursue on the outside to bring into us, Paul says, listen, the Holy Spirit has been put inside of you. He is able to produce those things much more in Christ than all of your external efforts are going to produce. In fact, he is able to produce those things inside of you when you are in your moments of greatest suffering. And you should boast in that. And that's really the calling that Paul leaves us here at the end of chapter 5. Boast in your hope of future glory, but it doesn't end there. Life is good, life is great, I am a ruler of the dominion of God's kingdom. And then boast in your suffering because it's there, and then boast in God because of the love that he's put inside of your hearts through the Holy Spirit. Let me pray.